Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello and welcome. Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living dynamic landscape of work through visual devices, through visual systems, how to install the current details of our operations, whether we are excellent or not quite as excellent as we want to be, whether we are just starting, we're making the transition from traditional to the new way, whatever those details are, we embed them, we capture them, we make them concrete through visual devices. We install the language of operations physically into the dynamic living landscape of work so that we can see how those details function, so we can see how our thinking about performance and performance outcome, about work and work content, about quality, about changeovers, about anything related to work, how that functions in reality because we've captured those details in visual devices. And we have captured the language and the meaning of those details as well. Visuality is literally the way to make work visible and therefore meaningful. And that's how it creates connections. It creates connections between intent and outcome, but also between people and amongst people. We are a village of work, of intention, and our language is visuality. We know it. It is our common way of communicating, and it gets richer and richer as we become more practiced in the details of that language, as we become more practiced in visual thinking. And our aim is to create a workforce of visual thinkers. That's what this show is about. It's about the methodologies and results. It's about the principles and practices. It's about the stories. It's about the trouble. It's about the victories. It's about making that journey. And it is my pleasure to bring this to you every week. I am so glad that you make time to listen in. We reach an audience that is really global. We have a lot of listeners in China, surprisingly. We have a lot of listeners in Poland and Romania and in the UK and in France. And we have some listeners, but not a lot, a lot, a lot in the United States. I guess we're busy doing other things here. But we are a global show with a global audience and a global message, and I am delighted to bring it to you. If you want to visit us on our website, it is visualworkplace.com. If you want to reach us through email, use radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com. That's also the way to reach me, or you can just reach us directly from our website. And please go there. Please go there for articles that are free. There's over 100 of them. Please go there for these podcasts, which you can download directly or just listen while you are on our site. 
And I think I've told you that we are now with Shingo Prize. They are sponsoring and promoting my online training systems. First of all, Work That Makes Sense, which is the topic that we have been dealing with now for well over two months and for many months to come. So that's exciting. We're very excited about that. Very, very excited. I knew Shingo. Shingo was my sensei. Shigeo Shingo was my sensei in the 1980s. And one of the things that I proudly announce about him is that he was not such a nice person. I mean, his respect for the individual was respect for his clients' individuals. But for us who were his students, who sat at his knee and he hammered at and he demanded of, it was respect, but in the very, very long view. He was a really grumpy person, as was Taiji Ono. Taiji Ono had a... Um, he had a country to save, an economy to rebuild, and he took it very personally. And he was, he was just a killer diller. I tell you, he he made he he meant business, and he got incredible results. Uh, there was no such thing in his mind or at the time about being politically correct. He was simply effective, and he was a giant, a giant, as was Shigeo Shingo. My grumpy, grumpy sensei. I loved him very much. He was fierce. He was demanding. And I was his happy, happy, warm body that would do whatever he said and would do it well. He asked me to develop a course on pokey oak so the West would understand it and other things like that. Yeah, master, changeover, sensei. So welcome. We are in the midst of our sub-series on becoming a brilliant visual workplace trainer. And I began it when I got to chapter three of the Work That Makes Sense book, which I'm walking through. It's a long journey. There's so much substance in there. And I took a detour to talk about becoming a brilliant trainer. And I went over the, the principles, the nine principles, and then the five requirements of the physical environment, the nine principles of training. And now I'm doing another detour because it's so relevant. And that is into the inversion of the power structure. And this topic comes up as related to what happens in the training room and what is the purpose of the work that makes sense methodology. You certainly get performance outcomes that are dramatically improved, 15 to 30% increase in productivity, tremendous quality, dramatic quality improvements, speed, flow, linear, uh, should I say, aligned material consumption, and if you work in offices, these things are also true against the metrics that you use there. It is work that makes sense is operator-led visuality, associate-led visuality, hourly employee-led visuality. And the purpose of the methodology is not just to get the outcomes and the impact on the bottom line, but it is really to, to teach a way of thinking, a new way of thinking about problems and how they get solved, about motion and the information deficits that trigger that motion. And then we eliminate both the solutions that are visual. That is visual thinking. And our outcome, our enterprise 
wide outcome is to create a workforce of visual thinkers. That includes your CEO, your plant manager, your GM, your operators, maintenance staff, accounting, engineers, doesn't matter. They work for the company. We create a visual enterprise out of their expression of their function in terms of visual solutions. It's quite, quite exciting. During the methodology, what happens is we call it a a comprehensive transformation. I could also call it a revolution in the power structure. It is a slow and firm revolution in the power structure, and that's what we're talking about today. If you remember, this was triggered by two shows ago when I talked about supervisors during the training sessions, and their roles were to show up, but keep a low profile. The supervisors and managers were not there to do either, neither to supervise nor to manage, but simply to sit, to learn, to observe, and to be pretty much invisible in terms of their roles outside of the training room, their roles vis-a-vis the people in that training room who were uh, on a lower salary level and over whom both supervisors and managers had authority. That doesn't present during a training session. That is something that we say, hold on to it. It's not going to go away. It's just that we don't use it here. We are attempting to find a different power source and to shift the power, not to take anything away from you, but instead to let something new grow. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm going to now kind of complete, or actually I didn't get very far last week as usual, meaning that I talk too much. I know that. Oh, man, I love to talk. I love these. I love these concepts and I love walking through them. But if you remember last last time, uh, I talked to you about the about leaders and the power inversion and the challenge, the need for a new paradigm, something to counteract the top-down command and control military model, the paternalistic mode of governing an organization or the world. And I talked to you about the big picture about the two pyramids of power. This discussion was very ripe during the 1980s, and people acted upon it. They didn't know exactly what to do, but they knew that it was a good idea, and as much as they were able to conceive of how to operationalize it, they operationalized it. It got them in a lot of trouble, because one of the problems was they felt they had to make a choice. They, had a, they, they followed a false decision point. The top-down pyramid is with the general or the CEO, the GM at the top, at the apex of the pyramid, and value-add associates or foot soldiers lining the bottom, the broad bottom of the pyramid. That's the top-down paradigm. The reverse, the inverse, is literally bottom-up, with the leader at the bottom now In a sense, it's the nadir, not the apex, the opposite. It's the bottom. The point is facing downward. And at the apex, which is now at the bottom, is your your authority 
your ranking side executive leadership and your foot soldiers or your value-added employees are lining across the top, the broad pieces at the top. You've seen this many times. And the supreme commander, as it were, becomes the servant leader. We literally turn the paradigm on its head. The mistake that was made in the 1980s, and it may lurk in the minds of some right now, because it has not been carefully delineated, which is what's the difference, which is more important, and how do you operationalize the one that's more important? Well, the fact is, and it's part of my message today, that neither is more important than the other. They actually are equal. And so it's a false decision point. Now we're getting into the meat of our discussion today. The, the, it's a false decision point, even though the bottom-up pyramid appears to be the polar opposite of the top-down approach. It's inverted and does organize around a different set of preferences and principles and values and actions. You don't throw the other one out. Even though for decades, if not hundreds of years, if not a thousand, if not several thousand years, we have completely ignored, had no awareness of and no desire to know it, the bottom-up pyramid. That value-add associates are people who line the bottom of the social strata or the economic strata were of any importance. They were instead, and you know this, just hands and feet. We hired them. This is all the beginning of the 20th century when the, when the masters of industry took over whatever the railroads, the coal mines, all of the industrial base and used people up, used them up, paying them very, very low wages and having no concept of them as human beings, let alone as equal human beings. That was completely out of the mind of 99.9% of the people who owned the mechanisms of industry. There were a few in there who had a recognition of the missing piece. And they were called the revolutionaries at the time. And they stirred up trouble. But it was very hard to hear them. The change really didn't begin. I think it was triggered in my assessment of of history. It was triggered by World War II and by the kind of equality that happens when you are really pulling together to defeat a common enemy and everyone is equal because everyone is needed. And that's one of the amazing dynamics of World War II. We really did have a global threat. And we pulled together. We were in the same rowboat. It took us something in the United States a little while to jump into that rowboat. But nevertheless, when we did, we were there a thousand percent. And we pulled at the oar and we got, we helped to get us where we needed to go. The world was the us. That was then um, emphasized, underlined, fed by what happened in the 1960s, the whole kind of liberation of everything you could think to liberate, and that's unfolding still. So we're getting closer to uh, the, the paradigm shift, but it's happening, I think, for the most part, invisibly. We're not really aware of what the dynamics are, and that's what I want to kind of map out here. 
And in fact, in the early 1980s, when the so-called Japanese miracle came over and the companies in the United States and the West were trying to figure out what is the engine that makes this go, what the Japanese persuaded us to was that it was quality circles and empowerment. And they watched us as we adopted that and as we gave up the top-down pyramid and pretty much turned over the running of the companies to quality circles and other empowerment configurations. Now, we were surprised when that failed, but the Japanese weren't. They kind of let us walk into that, fall down that rabbit hole, and they knew that we didn't have the concept. We threw the baby out and the bathwater. So the two pyramids... Okay, I'm going to make a differentiation now. There are two pyramids. One is the opposite of the other. It literally looks that way. One is standing up on its broad base, and the other one is balancing on its tiny little peak. The top down and the bottom up. In the top down pyramid paradigm, executives, now this is the good news This is why we don't throw the top-down pyramid out, because executives are responsible for vision, mission, value, strategy, systems, and structure. Their position at the top of the pyramid provides the long view that allows the corporation, the enterprise, to align with its long-term objectives. The GM, the CEO, sets the framework in place and answers the question, what, why, and who? What are we about? What are our products? What is our common purpose? What are our strategic objectives? And why is any of of these important? Why bother? And who? Who is responsible for these what's and these why's? The accountability condition. The so-called head of the snake is the apex of that top-down pyramid. That person, that group is responsible for defining the corporate intent. The bottom-up pyramid, if you will, shorthand would be, focuses on the how. How is that purpose deployed? How are the objectives met? How are products and services made and delivered? How do operations fulfill its part of the corporate intent, the corporate process? So it's a contributing, not so much a design function, but a contributing function. And in terms of the value-add level, the empowerment approach asks employees to become scientists of their own process. You've heard me say this repeatedly, to become scientists on a local level so they can find ways to improve and upgrade that process, hopefully systematically, hopefully continuously. If your executive makes decisions, requirements around it has to be systematic and it is going to be continuous, you got a much better chance chance that. So these are two very different but side-by-side functions executed by two distinct groups. So it, it is a mistake in the face of these dramatic opposites for a company to struggle to decide which of the two pyramids to embrace and which to erase. These are false questions. 
They are wrong questions. And by the way, there's a pretty complete discussion of this in my book, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking, in uh, Chapter 3. Okay? If this captures you, it's pretty much spelled out there with, with the pyramids dancing around. So it isn't a question of which one do we throw out. Don't throw out either. But instead, the purpose of the two pyramids is to clarify the function of each and then to blend these two seeming opposites into a single paradigm. It's a very interesting dynamic. Your company needs both. Both. So you take one pyramid and you place it, situate it right on top of the other pyramid. It, it's called a star tetrahedron, another name for it commonly, it's called the star of David. But in fact, it's, it's connected with Judaism, but that's also a false idea. In fact, this tetrahedron is an ancient icon that we have seen since time immemorial immemorial in the art of, yes, Judaism, but also ancient Mesopotamia, Persia, India, Egypt, China, and modern Christianity. I remember walking along in the lakes, which is one of my favorite places to to hike, the lakes, the English lakes, and it's incredible. It's like being in Camelot. It's a fairyland. And I'm walking along, and I come across this Protestant church, and right there over the these huge doors was, was the, the star tetrahedron, this double tetrahedron in a round window. And that's a point I want to make very specifically. The double tetrahedron, the double pyramid, a tetrahedron just means it has volume. It's, it's um, um, like a pyramid in Egypt. It's not just a triangle. It's a pyramid. So you've got volume, it takes up space. When those two pyramids are sitting one on top of another, this is in the ancient, the religious iconography of most of the civilized war, I'm sorry, world, most of the civilized world, there's a third element that is expressed. It is expressed when we take steps to resolve the seeming opposites. And that third element is a circle. It's actually a sphere because it has volume. It surrounds the two pyramids situated one on top of another. Okay? The image, this image and the circle is a universal icon, a universal symbol. And you know what it's for? It's for unity. It is the universal symbol of unity. In its ancient original depiction, the two triangles are inscribed within a circle. Again, it's a star tetrahedron inscribed in a sphere. And many, many years ago, I used to teach, I studied, and then I used to teach something called sacred geometry. I was trying to think of today as I thought about the show about what is a shorthand way of making you understand that. And it was, it had its little woo-woo edges, it's true, it had its little woo-woo thing. But what was so interesting about it is that it used 
man, the human, as the measure for the geometry, literally. And you can see this most most vividly in Michelangelo's um, man in a circle. If you study that, that is a star tetrahedron inscribed in a sphere. So it's ancient, and it was well-known. It's a little bit maybe arcane, because we don't commonly interface with those concepts in our modern world, but it wasn't arcane two or three hundred years ago. It was commonly understood. And what I want to say on this, what I want to dwell on, is that what you're looking at in those three symbols, the top-down pyramid, the bottom-up pyramid, and the sphere, is... not even a metaphor, a formula for unity. Because what we're doing is we're taking two opposites and we're getting them to be comfortable with each other, to work together. In the center of those two pyramids is common ground. Is that space in the middle, which is actually... A hexagon, it's a six-sided, it's a six-sided um, figure in the center of the two pyramids. Choose any set of opposites. Muslims and Jews, why did I choose that first? I have no idea. Male and female, Democrats and Republicans, I should bring them out. Democrats and Republicans talk about opposites. Managers and hourly employees, us and them. Native Americans, White Americans, white colonialists, black Americans, pro-choice, pro-life opposites. How do these sets of extremes coexist? Well, they don't unless you make an effort to find common ground. How do they find their resolution? How do they become unified? They find common ground is the only way. The work of unification is through the often arduous and always rewarding work of finding common ground, creating a unity. This isn't just hard work. It is transformative, meaning that it doesn't just change the thing, it changes us. It transforms us. And when they combine, we can still see the opposite. It's like a great marriage. Husband and wife, let's take them for a moment as opposites. You marry a person, and after a while, there's some struggle, and you work it out. You work it out. You don't become one in the romantic adolescent sense of love or marriage, becoming one. But you're each whole human beings. And the parts of the pyramid that are not held in common are the parts that are you. And the parts of your spouse that do not overlap in the center are the parts that are him or her. And that person wants to keep those parts. The common ground is in the center, but there's parts of this union that will always be mine and only mine, exclusive. That's my differentness or the, his or her differentness, exclusive and distinct. 
Much is shared and has to be shared, but there is still separate, distinct, independent components, and that is what makes the union, if you will, the marriage strong because of what is shared, but also what is different. I mean, it's just an incredible depiction, a metaphor. We commit to finding common ground, but we are not absorbed by the other. This is not Borg. Resistance is futile. I will absorb all that is you, and it will become everything. It will become me. (laughs) And in the book, um, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking, this very nice chapter three, I like it so much, is a description of an actual struggle like this that turned out to be unifying. It was between pro-life and pro-choice. This was in the 1990s. It's hard to find more polar opposites than that, at least in the United States. Each has an ironclad set of values and premises that support its correctness and that brook no argument. And... In the mid-1980s, I heard about this in the 90s, a small Midwestern town uh, began to worry about the oppositeness of these two groups, pro-life and pro-choice. And one said to the other, listen, we are each so convinced of our own rightness and the other's wrongness that one of these days, you know, we might start killing each other. This was long before that happened. We might start killing each other. Why don't we sit down and try to understand each other so we don't further polarize? Even though I know and you know that we can never agree, we just can't go on like this. This is horrible. You know, it's gotten, I'll say as a footnote, 35, 40 years later, it's gotten worse. But anyway, the group at the time you know, kind of said, well, you know, let's get together and see what happens. And what they agreed upon was this. They met a few times and they said, okay, if you really want to do it, we're going to have to take turns because there really can't be a conversation about what I mean without you interrupting me. And I'm not going to understand what you mean without interrupting you. So let's set upon some ground rules. And it was this. We'll toss a coin, somebody will win the toss, and that person, that group, will decide either to listen or to present, and if you present, then you present your point of view and you do it thoroughly, and the other group will listen, and you get to say, the group that is presenting its point of view thoroughly gets to say, when in your assessment, the other The other group understands. The presenting group will declare that the listening group has understood based on any criteria you like. Both groups, I should say both groups did agree on a definition of understood, but listen to it, it is so um, wide. When the listening group can repeat back the position and perspective of the presenting group to the presenting group's satisfaction, 
it'll be given that the listening group has understood. And then they switch roles. And then they switch roles. And the group that was listening then presents, and the group that was presenting listens with the same ground rule. Repeat back what I said to my satisfaction. And they did that. And they did that. And so they tossed a coin at the first meeting of the new era and determined which group would begin. It was pro-life at one. And so pro-life began to explain its beliefs and values and premises. And at every step of the way, pro-choice was obliged to repeat back its understanding until the pro-life group said, yes, you understand. But instead of what happened is like pro-life would say, no, 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 you missed the point. What we're saying is this. And believe me, it would be hard for poor choice to swallow that and repeat back the words. But that was the idea. They were beginning to find a way to common ground. And so they had to listen and they had to understand. And that, the pro-life part of that process took nearly six months. And when it was complete, the roles were reversed. Took another over six months this time. And at the end of that period, over a year, these two polar opposite groups understood that they understood the other group's decision. They did not agree with it, not one bit, but they understood. And in the wisdom of that moment, the two groups decided that now that they understood each other, they didn't want to throw away the opportunity. And they searched for common ground of action not just common ground of understanding. What is something that we could do together? Because we've worked so hard and we want to kind of operationalize this acceptance of the other's point of view. And they realized that they both had an abiding interest in the welfare of children. And they began to meet once a month to work together on children's projects. And that's the way it was left, and that's when I heard about it in the 1990s. You want to know the name of the group? So do I. If you know this group, they were in Madison, Wisconsin, let me know. I looked high and low for them. The book I wrote was in 2005. I looked everywhere. I could not trace them down. So I'd love to give you the particulars. I heard about it. I was stunned. Ten years later, I wrote a book, and I said, wow, this is what we're talking about. Two groups that kept their differences and held to them fiercely, but they found common ground, the center of these two pyramids. And they arrived at enough agreement for them to move forward together on an issue of mutual interest. And by the way, this is a definition that I use with uh, operators, and that is consensus. And we also, I'm very careful on saying, you don't bother with consensus when you're ordering pizza. It has to be a big deal because it's going to take time. But the definition of consensus is the active search for disagreement until enough agreement, until enough agreement is met for us to move forward together. Listen to those three pieces. The active search for disagreement Number one, until enough agreement is met 
Number two, for us to move forward together. We learn a new way. This is exactly what is transpiring in companies throughout this country and around the world as executives and senior managers are learning a new way. And as hourly employees, the bottom-up pyramid, these folks are learning a new way. Neither is easy. Both groups are indispensable to running the company. Each is powerful, but I want to talk about that. But the group that seems to be uniquely powerful is the top-down group, executives and managers. And I want to talk about the power, the hidden power, the, that, in fact, transforming the work culture, this process that we're talking about is at its foundation a rebalancing of power. The roles and the power bases will remain distinct. Executives and senior managers especially have their own set of duties, responsibilities, and functions, and so do uh, hourly employees. The effort is not to blend those duties and responsibilities, but instead, I would put it this way, to identify them. And then to find a common purpose, finding that common ground. It may sound like achieving operational excellence. Well, it does sound like achieving operational excellence. Because it cuts across all company functions. Because we're cultivating profit and prosperity. The long life of the company and shareholders and the workforce and the community at at large. This common purpose, this common ground allows both sides to deploy their strengths for a common good. They pull their strengths, but they don't become homogenized. They don't become one. Go back to the marriage analogy. And that is exactly what happens in work that makes sense. We specifically separate operators And we say, while they're in the training room or while we are working with them on their visual solutions, please, supervisors, let us do that and show you how to be a coach without being a supervisor. It's no easy task. These employees are the translation point of the change. They carry the messages. I really want to emphasize to you the importance of supervisors and managers. I want you to understand I'm not dismissing them at all. They are indeed a player in this shifting balance of top-down and bottom-up. They do the translation. They carry messages between the apex and the base, between the base and the apex in both the top down and the bottom up. They are, as it were, caught in the middle. They're a band in the middle. It's no easy place. The goals of the general and the goals of the foot soldiers are clearly defined But lieutenants and sergeants, they have to make it happen. Theirs is a role of support and coaching and influence. 
In traditional organizations, middle managers and supervisors are the problem solvers of the enterprise. But most of the time, the problems aren't theirs. They inherited them from the generals and the foot soldiers. And both groups want a solution. Generals demand and foot soldiers get grumpy. Supervisors and managers are caught in the middle in the traditional organization, and they are caught in the middle in the new organization. They are caught in the middle because they are helping to make this transition happen. Okay? So, given that, I want to talk about how this inversion or this blending begins. The top-down pyramid is the starting point for the process of converting the work culture. There is no question about it. This is because companies that need to convert are, by definition, functioning from a top-down military command and control, demand and control model. They could have never gone into business without that or stayed in business during the 20th century Command and control is the make decisions, get things done line of attack. It requires task and action. Yet when we study this form closely, we see that the top-down pyramid contains another one. The top-down pyramid contains another pyramid. You can think of top-down as, let's say, gold, and the bottom-up, as blue. So when you look at this golden pyramid with the general at the top and the foot soldiers at the base, you'll see the outline of a blue pyramid nested within it. Inside the command and control pyramid, this is what I'm saying, is the pyramid of empowerment, but it is dormant. It is waiting. It is powerful only in its potential. The bottom-up pyramid is embedded in the top-down model. It's hidden prisoner. Okay? What I'm the this came to me when I was sitting as I often do in the middle of the night contemplating contemplating. And I said, "Wait a second. What where did the power come from?" Where did the power come from that became the empowerment model? Where did that bottom-up power come from? Where is it now before it has expressed itself? Power doesn't just materialize because you, you don't kind of find it hidden in the closet. It has to be lodged somewhere. And then it's liberated. Where is it before it's liberated? And that occurred to me, of course. The command and control model holds both conditions of power. That's what makes them so powerful. They've taken the power. They've never shared the power that belongs to the foot soldiers, the bottom up. And, you know, the military model isn't exactly a very good analogy because, in fact, the military model has a very, very balanced uh, paradigms of power. They, in fact, the military is organized around two paradigms of power. They've already liberated the strength 
of the foot soldiers. The only thing is, the theme in the military is obedience. It's obedience. It's some kind of distortion of discipline. When we begin to see the shortcomings of the obedience paradigm, we understand that the way to address these shortcomings is by subverting or inverting the power of command and control. We turn to the workforce, and in a sense, we say, we still need obedience, but this time we want you to obey a different knowing than just our rules. We want you to find and then listen to and then listen to your inner drive for excellence. Yours is the new power mandate. This is what work that makes sense is. Become a scientist of the process. Become a scientist of motion. Get to know it for yourself. Get informed. Get educated. And then get active. This variation, this is a variation on the theme of obedience. And I will give you a little bit more on that. I think we will have to meet one more time. I hope this is useful to you. But I want you to to think about this liberating the hidden pyramid, the one that is a prisoner of the top-down model. You liberate that hidden pyramid. You release it. This is a three-step process. You release it, and then it begins to invert. But when you find it, it's the gold pyramid, and inside of it, coterminous with it, is the blue pyramid. Senior management has all the power. And that's what it feels like as well. My mother was a factory worker. I never went inside of her factory. She was in everything because my father had a heart attack when he was 50. And my brother, my little brother, he's he's my older brother, but he was little at the time, happened to have lost the little envelope with my father's insurance premium in it, that particular part, month, week, day, hour of our family's life. And so when my father had his heart attack, he had no insurance because that premium got lost on the way to the mailbox. My little, my brother, Gary. And my mother then had to support the family. My father was 50 at the time. It was hard work. It was at a time when women didn't have a role, but she was an entrepreneur. I'm going to spend 15 shows telling you about my mother and what an extraordinary woman she was. I gave her such a hard time when I was a teenager. But then I had many years with her where I was just gobsmacked at her power and her joy and her her indomitable spirit. But she worked in a factory. And she kept her job. She was a good worker. She was also a charmer. But I never went inside that factory until I became uh, a person who now lives in factories and loves factories, but never when my mother worked there. So let me talk to you. So, So this imprisonment of power is something that I got. I saw her not very often because she was working all the time. My father basically brought us up, and he had a very heavy hand. He was Swiss. My goodness, what a punishing, what a 
punishing um, society. Oh, my goodness. They come after you. (laughs) So making this transition to genuine unity is a long journey, and it is accomplished in three courageous steps. The first step is, first of all, it's taken when senior management recognizes that its top-down approach works against the company's success and then decides to break the inertia of the past and to share the power currently imprisoned in its command and control paradigm to release that power so that it can power value-add associates equally on an equal footing. So the decision is step one. Step two is breaking that inertia, taking the first fledgling steps to activate the change. Management must do that, must take that step to break the inertia of the past. Inertia is a mighty force, a mighty force. What is it, 93% of the fuel is needed just to break the gravitational pull when a rocket goes to the moon, just to break the leave, leave the Earth's orbit? Maybe it's 80%. I'll try to look it up for you. But it's huge, and the rest gets you there. But it's breaking that inertia. So first is the decision. Three-step process. First is the decision. Second is breaking the inertia. And the third step is to operationalize that transformation. A long series of almost imperceptible shifts as the inertia that holds power, the power of empowerment that holds that a prisoner begins to dissolve and is slowly replaced by parity. Slowly, the pyramid begins to, the blue pyramid begins to invert. Hmm? And in visuality, that's exactly the way it happens in work that makes sense. Where line employees are put in charge of their corner of the world to claim those corners through the visual wear, through smart placement. And in doing so, that iron hold of the command and control pyramid is loosened. And the fluid power of the bottom-up pyramid, the blue, is released and freed. Free at last, free at last, to invert. Mm. So, we will continue this. I think it's important enough for you to understand what work that makes sense is. Otherwise, it's going to be labels and lines. It's going to be smart placement. You'll really love it. But you won't understand that this shift happens because of methodology, because of system, and because those outcomes are built in. And those outcomes are powerful bottom-line contributions to the corporate good, but it is also the release and the strengthening, or if you have it already, the strengthening of the work culture and building, build, shifting that identity. The I comes forward. Next week, I'll tell you about our definition of of discipline that will help to bring that home. This is the glory of the work that I'm doing. This is the glory that I love to share with companies when they want it, 
when they're organizationally ready and they want it. They may get it in many other ways, but this is one way. And this is my favorite way because I I love these methodologies. I've been given a gift and I love to give the gifts that I've been given. I want to thank you very much for spending this almost hour with me talking about these things. I'd love to hear from you. We hear from many of you. Please write us at radio at visualworkplace.com and continue your journey. Continue this important journey that is, in fact, shifting the power in our world right now, even as we speak, as we listen and as we speak. This shift is happening, and it's gradual. The inertia has been broken rather um, rather dramatically, but nonetheless, we're in the really we're really in the midst of a of a seismic change. I I didn't experience all the other huge changes: World War Two, World War One, the Depression, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the Civil War, the founding of our country, the storming of the British, our Declaration of Independence. I wasn't around for that. I'm around for this, and man, it is riveting and compelling and noteworthy and painful and no one is at all certain about what is the direction except you feel like something is really changing and it's not going to go back. The economy will recover. It will take quite a while. But there are deeper changes happening that will that will never go back. We're being changed. We're being transformed. Nobody asked my permission. Nevertheless, I'm, you know... I'm here for the show. I'm thinking of Dante's Peak with uh, Bronson. What was his? Pierce Bronson. That was a great movie. Thank you very much for tuning in. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.